Do not be angry that I am a woman, and so have lips that want your kiss, and breasts that want your fingers on them. Being human, I need a heart on which my heart can rest. Do not be angry that I cry your name at the harsh night, or wear the darkness through, with blind arm groping for you in a dream. I was made flesh for this, and so were you. Quarrel with God if you like, but not with me, that hands beat impotently for three years against an iron door, could still caress the naked body of love with ecstasy, and might have ways to teach you tenderness, more than you have learned from all your prayers. Sonnet 39 by Joy Davidman Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. There's this deep spiritual life that she's trying to put off because she's a child of materialism, she says as well. There's this bifurcation that we see in joy, sort of this material world that she believes is all that there is, and yet there's this longing, this desire for meaning, almost a desire for transcendence. And I think it's worth noting that it's exactly the pattern that you see in Lewis's life. Episode six, The Lost Love Sonnets, Joy's Poetry to C.S. Lewis with Dr. Don W. King. Dr. Don W. King is a professor at Montreat College and a C.S. Lewis scholar. An active researcher and writer, Dr. King has published numerous books and over 60 articles. He is also a recipient of the Distinguished Professor of the Decade Award. His book, Yet One More Spring, a critical study of the works of Joy Davidman, contains the poetry we'll be talking about today. When 300 lost poems were found, including 45 love sonnets for C.S. Lewis in a sequence, Don brought them to life. Today, I will talk to him about how these poems fill in a biographical gap. In many ways, these sonnets were Joy's journal. I will talk to him about Joy's poetry, her persistence, and her talent, and the always asked question, did Joy give C.S. Lewis these poems? When I read these poems, I feel like time folds in on itself and joy comes alive in a new way for me. Her voice in this poetry is vibrant, full of desire and fun, and yet also deep pain. Joy is alive in these poems in a way I hadn't found anywhere else. So welcome, Don, as we talk here at Montreat College. So at the end of your Anglican-American Review essay called A Naked Tree, you state one of my very favorite summaries of Joy, and it's that she is a gifted poet and a determined lover. I want you to tell me about that a little bit. Yes, well, uh, Joy's poetry, when you have a chance to look at it in its total, 
is an amazing record uh, of a person who took the writing of poetry seriously. Mm. She was a craftswoman, and she loved to experiment with various poetic meters and poetic devices. And so I, I think it's, um, for those of us that like reading poetry, it's a pleasure to read someone who's spent that much time and done such a good job, job in the writing of poetry. So you say about her poetry in general, and I love this so much. It is important to know that Joy cut her poetic teeth while writing in the middle of the 20th century literary modernism using free verse. So tell me, tell us, how you see her poetry in that light. Because she's been writing poetry since she was about five or six years old, literally, until the day she died. She was writing poetry. So how do you see that bulk of her poetry in light of the 20th century literary modernism? Well, I think it's clear to a lot of us now that Perhaps her natural form was the sonnet, Mm. but the sonnet wasn't a popular form during a a modernism. Free verse. Free verse. And so poets like uh, Stephen Vincent Benet, who was also a a mentor to her, W.H. Auden, um, and certainly Walt Whitman, who's, of course, earlier than her chronologically, but he's the great American writer of free verse. And so I think Joy, in wanting to show that she was uh, cognizant of of modern poetry, decided to use free verse. And I think it also freed her to uh, talk about the kinds of things that she wanted to talk about in her poetry. She wasn't limited by meter and, and so forth. But beautiful free verse. She relies on cadence and rhythm and pace. So a really good, really good poet. And it seems innate. I mean, I know she worked at it hard. Like you said, she was a craftswoman. But when you read her free verse poetry... It is very narrative. Right. It has a certain flow. And we, we have to mention that she won the Yale Younger Poets Award for that free verse. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that was quite an honor. Um, earlier poets to win that award had been Robert Frost. So she was in quite good company. What I also think is interesting is that she didn't win it the first time she entered it. Mm-hmm. But Binet really complimented her work. Right. It just shows her determination as a craftswoman and in life, because I kind of set forth that her work shows us the kind of person she is. And so when she didn't win it, she went back and revised it and then won it. She didn't give up. No, she she was not the kind of person to be defeated the first time. And we see that pattern uh, throughout her life in other things as well. Over and over. Yeah. So I want to talk about a little bit about the themes of her poetry before we dive into my favorite subject, which is the love sonnets. Sure. And you say that there are three overarching concerns in her poetry, which I believe are actually the three overarching concerns of her life. So... The first you say is God and death. So talk a little bit about that and give, maybe give us an example. I think from a very early age, even though if you read her autobiographical essay, she talks about having lost a faith or not really ever having had a faith, becoming an atheist early on. Nonetheless, there was a deep uh, spiritual reservoir in her. And so um, she has to think about death like we all do. She has to think about immortality and the possibility of that. So in some of her early poetry, we see her um, dealing with those issues. And interestingly enough, in spite of her being ethnically Jewish, she has a number of poems in which she's actually talking to Jesus. Uh, A poem like Again Rising, where um, Jesus is on the cross. Another poem, Resurrection, which she said she wrote at Easter, not realizing sort of the irony of that. 
she has these dialogues with Jesus along the way. And then later on in her autobiographical essay, she says that if anyone was ever haunted by Christ, it was me. So there's this deep spiritual life that she's trying to put off because she's a child of materialism, she says as well. There's this bifurcation that we see in joy, sort of this material world that she believes is all that there is, and yet there's this longing, this desire for meaning, almost a desire for transcendence. And I think it's worth noting that it's exactly the pattern that you see in Lewis's life. It's amazing. It's yeah. more than it's one of many patterns that they both repeated until they met. Mm-hmm. And you say the second overarching concern in her poetry is politics. Right. Being uh, eventually a card-carrying member of the Communist Party of the United States of America and becoming a member of the staff of the New Masses, the semi-official magazine of that party, Joy had to deal with politics. And some of her political poetry is, is good. It's interesting. But oftentimes, uh, it's very polemic. And rather than show in her political poetry, she tells. Mm. And so she becomes sometimes a little bit preachy in her uh, poetry. Um, exceptions would be poems like uh, Snow in Madrid. Mm. Deborah Winger quotes a few verses of that in the Shadowlands version with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, and another poem entitled Pacific Shore it has that edge. It's underneath the surface. It's revolutionary. And yet, um, again, I think she does a better job of showing us what she wants us to connect with as opposed to telling us. And then the third, and our favorite, is the largest of her poetry is devoted to romantic love. She spent so much of her life trying to understand it, conquer it, possess it. And you write, she shows a fierce desire to possess the beloved. And you say it also proves she is never above begging. <laughs> I love that. Joy's love poetry, like other parts of her life, she's all in when it comes to a lover. She has poems entitled, for instance, Obsession, and it's just a poem about how she wants to possess this person that she's in a relationship with. And, and clearly she had a number of sexual relationships before she married, and of course before she met uh, Lewis. A poem like Night Peace is Mm. one in which she suggests she's like a magician and she's going to build a series of circles around her lover. And there's no way he's going to get out of that because she has this fierce desire to possess him. And then I think the poem that perhaps epitomizes her as a possessive lover is Yet One More Spring. Just uh, an amazing poem. And and it it gives us so much of her voice as well, this determined, concentrated, focused, winner-take-all, not suffering fools lightly, all those kinds of things that are part of her voice. So now let's move on to the sonnets. And what, what you call them is what I felt when I read them for the first time, which is an imagined dramatic conversation. Mm-hmm. It's the perfect description when you see them as a whole. Right. So I want you to tell us how they were found from the get-go. Because you say there were, she wrote, what, over 90 yeah. sonnets mm-hmm. and only five were ever published? Yeah. And they're akin to personal journal entries. But they were hidden. Yeah. This great passion of hers was, tell us how they were found. It's sure. so interesting. In 2010, Gene Wakeman, uh, Joy's best friend, was uh, dying. And she contacted Doug Gresham, Joy's son, asked him to come to her home and essentially clean it out. And when Doug went there and started going through some of the boxes, he opened up a box 
And on the top, he saw a manuscript in Lewis's name. I think it might have been a version of Letters to Malcolm, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he recognized Lewis's hand. And so as he went further into the box, he discovered 300 poems that his mother had written that no one knew about, dozens of short stories, her uh, novella, Britannia, Mm -hmm. essays, um, letters. It was an an amazing, (laughs) an amazing treasure find. So eventually that material made its way to the Wade Center and and the people there contacted me and said, I think you want to come up here and look at some of this. So I think in April of 2011, I went up and started reading through the material. I was in the midst of writing my book on joy as as a writer. And I just had this sense there had to be more poetry. She only published about 80 poems during her lifetime. So you can imagine the excitement I felt. It's triple what you had, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, just a very exciting moment. So I started going through the material, and I can't, started coming across a few sonnets that were clearly addressed to Lewis. And as I look, worked through the material more and more, I actually found multiple drafts of those sonnets. But then Joy had put... 45 of those sonnets into a sequence. And they were the love sonnets that we now have. And uh, as I read each sonnet, I, I tell people this all the time. Here I am in the midst of this world-class research center, and I would get to the end of a sonnet, and I would just say out loud, wow, because they were so powerful, and I knew how many people would enjoy reading them and how it filled in a biographical gap for us. I mean, it's always dangerous to read poetry as um, a personal statement, but I think in this particular case, you you almost have to. Really, these sonnets are Joy's journal, and it's the journal of her love for Lewis and her desire to want to be closer to him, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And it's not stretching the imagination to do it, because you didn't pull these sonnets from various places. She put them together in a 45 sonnet sequence. Right, right. We didn't put them together in a 45 love sonnet sequence. Right. She did. Yeah. And she had them set there in a folder. And um, did the folder, was it labeled? Was it? There was a folder, and I think the title of it was Courage. We can't necessarily say that those sonnets were connected to that title, but it it is very interesting, and it perhaps is probable yeah. that that was the case. Another thing that's interesting about the sequence is she dated a number of the poems, and some of them date from well before she met Lewis. So as you think about that sequence, what that suggested to me was she had written a number of these sonnets, and then she decided, I'm going to put these together almost as a sort of rhetorical device, almost a way of trying to, if she gave them to Lewis, to make this argument uh, with him about why it is that she had these strong feelings for him and, of course, to invite him to be reciprocal in terms of those feelings. So it's really, it's re- that, that's another sign of her being a craftswoman. I mean, she, she realized at some point, wow, I've got this series that could explain how I feel and could perhaps win Lewis's heart. Also, I think the theory of mine is because so much of their past brought them together, so much from the the same kind of books they read, to the authors they were interested in, to their journey from atheism to theism to Christianity. She was saying, even though some of these poems are from the past, they're about you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I think the poem I mentioned earlier, Yet One More Spring, in her description of her desire for this person, even though it was written well before she she met Lewis, it's almost as if it was a pre 
written poem actually intended for Lewis much later. I mean, that's that's certainly not possible, but it kind of reads that way. And Well, and it feels that way. When you love someone, it feels like anything yeah. you said or did even before them is about them. It's probably the case that uh, Lewis is the first man that Joy really loved and had the love returned in a more than just a physical way. In a true way, in, in not a, a possessive way. or obsessive way. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Why do you think she chose sonnets? I think that she had a natural gift for writing sonnets. Her master's thesis, her focus in her master's degree was a Renaissance poet. So she was familiar with how popular the the sonnet form was during the Renaissance. And I think her sequence is influenced by um, John Donne's uh, holy sonnet sequence. Mm -hmm. He, too, develops a kind of narrative. So I, I think, you know, she's writing the sonnets to win Lewis, but she's also in a way, patterning that sequence after what she had seen in a poet like Dunn. You could even say that um, she may have been influenced by Tennyson's long uh, sequence, Love Sonnets, to his friend who died. So she had, I think she was following a pattern that she had seen and thought, well, this probably worked for Dunn, and it worked for Tennyson. I think it could work for me as too, as well. And it seemed to come more natural for her than any of the others. She really is almost artless, it seems. I know that's an exaggeration, but her sonnets seem artless. Well, and I know that Lewis said to her more than once, you know, I wanted to be a poet first mm-hmm. and then turned to prose because I was better at it. Yeah. And you are the one who's better at the poetry. Right. That's exactly right. So you assert that this particular collection was written to accomplish two things, which you alluded to, but one is to indicate her bold passion and the other is pointed rhetoric on intent on persuading him to return her affections. Mm-hmm. So she put it together as a whole that way. Who do you think is she is speaking to in these sonnets? Because sometimes she seems to be addressing, they're not always pointedly to Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. So, she, she's addressing um, several different uh, people or, or ideas. She, sometimes she's addressing a lover directly. Sometimes she's addressing um, Lewis himself. Sometimes she's talking to herself and she's uh, engaging in recriminations against mm-hmm. herself for having these strong feelings and sort of trying to win Lewis in, a, in an underhanded way, she feels. Sometimes she's addressing them to God. She's very frustrated at times by the fact that she wants to have Lewis's physical attentions, but he's holding her off. Sometimes to former lovers sometimes all these at once in one poem. Some of my favorites are when she's arguing with herself. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this? Why can't you let this go? Can you please just for once, you know, enjoy him for who he is? So honest. And let it go. So honest. And then one of my favorites is when she's actually arguing with God and seems to infer that it's a love triangle Mm -hmm. and he's winning. Right. How did she divide them up? Because she divided them up intentionally. Right. Yeah, the first little grouping of poems are set in America. And the next little grouping is set when she goes to England for the first time. And then she goes back to America. That's the third grouping. And then the longest grouping is when she comes to stay in England. And um, that's when the poems become even more, we could say, aggressive. Ardent. uh, Ardent, (laughs) passionate. That guided how I divided up the novel. Mm -hmm. So if you notice, the novel starts in America says part one, America, part two, England, part three, America, part four, England. And they also, and not coincidentally, but they did end up being about the same length, mm-hmm. meaning we had some America, then a little longer in England, and then a brief in America, and then 
longer because that's how she wanted to unfold the story. Well, while while we're on this point, let me ask you a question. You preface each chapter with often with a couple of lines from the sonnets. So what helped you make the decision which sonnet to choose? I felt like you, that the sonnets were a narrative. Mm -hmm. And between her letters and the sonnets, I felt as if I had her journal, even though we don't have any journals from Joy. So I felt her sonnets were her journals. And I wanted those to guide where the novel was headed. So if I had a chapter, because there's so much we could write about her and that time period. So much was going on in her life. We have other family dynamics. We have the communism. We have Dianetics was happening. But I needed a touchstone. I needed a cornerstone that I could touch every time I got lost. And the sonnets were that for me. Perfect for you. Yes. Because I I felt like I was heading down a rabbit trail that might take the story in another direction. I would use the sonnets to bring me back. So I thought they would also be a great guide for the reader. Mm -hmm. So I didn't choose the sonnet and write the chapter, but I did write the chapter and choose the sonnet. And if there wasn't a sonnet or a piece of poetry, some of them just have... Because she wrote Lewis some poems that aren't in the love sonnets. Yeah, about a dozen other poems. Mm -hmm. And she wrote some to her kids or about her kids. And so I included those also. But her poetry for me was a guiding force in how I structured the novel. So I wanted it to be a guiding force for the reader. Yeah, and there's no question that her gift as a writer is as a poet. Her fiction is okay. Exactly. But she did love editing fiction. Oh, yeah. You know, she wrote that letter to Bill about, if I have a gift in prose, it is as a, a helper and a collaborator. And I often see myself as his Max Perkins, mm-hmm. who was yeah. a very famous editor at yeah. the time. And I think so. later she helps Lewis. Oh, absolutely. The, she his, co-authors with him. Yeah, later, later works. Okay, so the question everybody asks, I know they ask <laughs> you, and I know they ask me every time I'm on the road, which is, do you believe she showed these sonnets to him? Well, I'll, I'll begin by saying we have no direct evidence that Lewis read the sonnets. There's no smoking gun. There's not a letter where he writes to a friend and says, I've just come across these sonnets. So we don't know for sure, but I do think that there's uh, enough internal evidence from the sonnets themselves and from some of the late sonnets that Lewis himself wrote to suggest that he read the sonnets. The best evidence that he read the sonnets, however, is A Grief Observed. Mm. And that has to do with the tone of that work. It's completely unlike anything else Lewis wrote. We could just uh, say that's because, well, he's he's got a broken heart. That's why we've got this tone. But I think the desperation, the pleading at times that we see in a grief observe, the frustration, that's reflected in the sonnets. And, And I think that Lewis was definitely influenced by reading them. So I think he read the sonnets. Again, no way to prove it for sure, but... And you point out something really that's in A Grief Observed that was in her poem, and that's the poem about the sword. Mm -hmm. She writes a poem using the sword as a metaphor, and then he uses that in A Grief Observed. There's also the internal evidence in her prefatory sonnet. She writes, here are some sonnets you care to read. Mm -hmm. I think evidence points that she took the time and the care to put them together in that way, wrote him a prefatory sonnet, and said, essentially, here is my heart. Yeah. Take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Again, those three sonnets that Lewis wrote almost certainly after Joy's death mm-hmm. or as she was dying suggest that he was definitely influenced by reading her sonnets. Right. So I think we're right. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps one day someone will find a, a letter or a diary entry or a journal where Lewis says, I, I read the 
This sonnets. is how those sonnets made I, me I feel. I actually wouldn't be surprised if something comes out later, but we'll just have to wait. Because there's see. some things locked up, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about another poet that Lewis was friends with and mm-hmm. a poet that some people, maybe some of his friends, would have preferred that he partnered with right. instead of with Joy. And her name was Ruth Pitter. Mm-hmm. And you wrote an excellent essay, scholarly piece, called Fire and Ice about this Mm -hmm. and about the difference between the two women, not only as women, but as poets and how Joy's winner-takes-all attitude and Pitter's you-must-win-me attitude are not only revealed in their personalities, but in their poetry. Yeah. Ruth Pitter was a pretty well-known poet in England from the 1930s to the late 1960s. She actually became something of a mentor to Lewis as a poet. She was not university educated. She was an artisan right towards the end of World War II. She was encouraged by a friend to read some of Lewis's material. She was already cognizant of Lewis because she heard him during the radio broadcast during World War II, his BBC radio broadcast. In fact, she attributes her conversion to Christianity to hearing Lewis on the radio. But eventually, through a mutual friend, they began to correspond with one another. And they probably, over the years, met a dozen times. They talked about poetry. They talked about art. They talked about food. Hmm. There's a great story of her sending him some marmalade, and he said this is like sunlight that's been bottled or, you know, put into a jar. So there were a, a number of Lewis's friends, George Sayre in particular, who thought if Lewis ever married, it would be perhaps Ruth Pitter. But as you've already suggested, the temperamental differences between um, Ruth and Joy would always argue against that. Ruth was reticent to share her feelings. She did write love poetry, and it's uh, certain that she probably had physical relationships with men. But for her, the ruling passion of her life was writing poetry. And she never met a man, perhaps except for Lewis, who had quite the same passion for poetry. I think in one letter she said it would have been a cruelty to animals to marry a man who wasn't as interested in poetry as I was. And she was reticent to show her feelings. Joy, on the other hand, a completely different kind of temperament, was not only used to pursuing, she had done it a number of times in her life. And we know at some point, probably in the mid-1940s, 1946, maybe as late as 1947, She had already been influenced towards Christianity by reading Lewis's The Great Divorce and the Screwtape Letters. It's probably at that point that her affections began to lean towards Lewis. She began to pin friendship with him. Mrs. Moore, the woman Lewis had been living with for all those years, she dies in 1951. There's this interesting sort of divine irony, you might call it. Mrs. Moore, who had been a burden, is removed from the scene, and then joy comes in. There was one meeting between the three of them. Oh, was there really? Yes, there was. Uh, Lewis invited the two of them to join How him. How naive is he? <laughs> to join him for lunch at the Eastgate Hotel. And in Pitter's um, journal later on, she said, that was the first and last time that I met Mrs. Gresham. And she doesn't have much else to say about that. Of course, I don't know what Joy's attitude was because we don't have anything that she wrote, but I think I can imagine what her attitude was. And you're right, Lewis was completely naive. 
he thought maybe these two women that he cared about would somehow, you know, hit it off. Both poets. They might <laughs> hit it off. Meanwhile, they're both madly in love <laughs> with exactly. him. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So to end, I want you to read maybe a couple lines or a whole poem of one of your favorites. Oh, gosh, that's that'll be hard. But um, let me read Snow in Madrid because it's one people will be familiar with. And Deborah Winger did not read the entire poem. She just oh. read a couple of the stanzas. It's not that long. This poem was written as a result of uh, Joy's communist passions, and it, it has to do with the Spanish Civil War. But it's it's not really a war poem. It's a poem about uh, the poignancy of death and, and loss. Softly, so casually, lovely, so light, so light, the cruel sky lets fall something one does not fight. How tenderly to crown the brutal year. The clouds send something down that one need not fear. Men before perishing see with unwounded eye for once a gentle thing fall from the sky. Just a, a lovely, a lovely poem uh, in, the, in the midst of pain and suffering and, and blood and gore, uh, this, this sort of moment of poignant reflection. And, uh, I'd like to read just maybe part of Yet One More Spring. I was actually going to ask you to do so. Okay. So the title of, of your book is Yet One More Spring, and I actually use several lines from it in the book, and I think it's one of the more beautiful things she's ever written. Yeah, all of the titles of my books uh, on joy come from her poetry. And this poem has uh, Out of My Bone, which is the title that I gave to her letters. But the gist of the poem is joy wondering after I die, what kind of significance is there going to be? Is anybody going to remember me? And so she writes in the last two stanzas as she thinks about that, will, will, I, will anything about me survive? She writes, out of my heart the blood root, out of my tongue the rose, out of my bone the jointed corn, out of my fiber trees, out of my mouth a sunflower, and from my fingers vines, and the rank dandelion shall laugh from my loins over million-seeded earth, but out of my heart, core of my heart, blood of my heart, the blood root coming to lift a petal in peril of snow, coming to dribble from a broken stem, bitterly the bright color of blood forever. But I would be more than a cold voice of flowers, more than water, more than sprouting earth under the quiet passion of the spring. I would leave you the trouble of my heart to trouble you at evening, I would perplex you with lightning coming and going about my head, outrageous signs and wonders. I would leave you the shape of my body filled with images, the shape of my mind filled with imaginations, the shape of myself. I would create myself in a little fume of words and leave my words after my death to kiss you forever and ever. Join me for the next episode when I again talk to Andrew Lazo, but this time about how C.S. Lewis was surprised by love by being surprised by the person of joy. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold published by HarperCollins' Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson, based on the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis, 
The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. Poetry selections by Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, read by Liz Hill and Simon Bubb. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks.